If you're visiting with us this morning, the children are going to head to the building right over here to have a time of uh, instruction for them. And then when the service is over, you can kind of head through the nursery and over there and, and pick them up over there. They will hold on to them uh, until you come get them. Our scripture passage this morning comes from chapter 3 of Jonah. It's a passage I was just talking about. Um, take note of animals wearing sackcloth. Um, I'll read it for us. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. worship team. Thank you for assisting us Sunday after Sunday and sharing your talents and gifts with us. Well, it's good to be together. Uh, We are continuing in this uh, unique book, Jonah, and Jonah chapter 3 is is our text this morning. Uh, It is about, it's about preaching, it's about repentance, it's about God's heart for the nations. Um, As I Think about preaching. I think in terms of preaching's impact on me. Uh, I did not imagine that I would be doing what I do uh, for uh, my life. And uh, I've shared the story before that I uh, encountered preaching on a day when I didn't at all think much of it. Uh, I was 19 years old in Southern California. I was a theater student. And uh, a family had kept 
inviting me to come to church. That was my, that's my story. And so I finally relented and I said, well, I can, I can in, endure a church service. Um, I think I know what happens. We sing some songs. We'll listen to something. I can escape and uh, I can survive the experience. That was kind of my attitude. So I went. I was just going to be polite to the people who invited me. And look what happened. <laughs> well, um, I remember being completely um, turned off, if the word is, yeah, I think that's the right word. Uh, Southern California, we all thought we dressed pretty hip. We all thought uh, much of uh, our, our fashion sense and um, casual. Casuals were where we all thought it was, we were supposed to live. And I remember this man in this pulpit, this little kind of a lectern, kind of a music stand, and there he was in a three-piece suit. I don't even know if I'd ever seen a three-piece suit. And there he was, and it was gray, and it was unattractive, and I remember just thinking how out of touch this guy is with what's real, with what's important, with what with what's happening now. You know what I'm saying? Who wears a three-piece suit? Those are the ones on sale, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the clothing shops. You, know, you can get three of them for 80 bucks or something, right? So those, no, no one buys those things. Well, there he was in his three-piece suit. And he preached on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And it was like the heavens opened up and this little prideful Southern California kid, his whole life, as much as he could understand, was unfolding before his eyes. His heart was beginning to tremble. He could not imagine a Jesus who, who knocks people off donkeys. That's what happens in the story, by the way. We're not sure if it's a donkey or a horse. But so the whole thing was completely unexpected. I thought I would hear about Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus teaching nice things on a hillside, you know, sort of kind of, you know, modified 60s people, you know, I know with flowers in their hair. And I thought Jesus was cool, you know. Of course I thought Jesus was cool. If you had asked me, hey, are you a Christian? I said, of course I'm a Christian. That's right. Sure. Why not? I'm an American. Why not? Oh. I had no idea what Christianity was about. I had no idea that Jesus, you know, was beyond sort of the, like the <clears throat> Easter, what ABC puts on. They put on the, some, some religious show about Jesus and, you know, he rises from the dead. But, you know, that's just a, that's a TV program. You know, that was all I thought. So preaching, just this ordinary day, and I am so thankful to God that on that just that, Rick, that Sunday morning, God used that man in his silly three-piece suit to preach the gospel. And it didn't look like much, meaning it was just a preacher doing his thing. And little did anyone know, and I didn't even know, 
It was the source of my conversion. In fact, I had a friend of mine about four days later. As I told him, I can't stop thinking about the Bible and Jesus. And I went to church, and Jesus has risen from the dead. And he's, like he's, it's like he's hovering over us. And I began to talk to my friend. And my friend explained to me, I think you became a Christian. <laughs> and we went to a Bible bookstore. And he bought me a Bible. And that was the beginning. Let's pray. Lord, it's just a regular Sunday morning. It just has the kind of the feel to what Sunday mornings are about. And I pray that you would help us to see the drama that's unfolding. I pray that time would stop right now. I pray that all that fills our hearts and minds and all that we think is important would just fade away. And I pray you'd intersect with us. I pray that you would really and genuinely be here. And I pray you'd help us to see you more clearly and to see Jesus more clearly and to thank you for the gospel. And may many cry out in their hearts, I had no idea that the situation was so serious and the answer is so glorious. So awaken us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is really an old text. We go, come from this, really the mid-700 B.C. It's a long time ago. And I've been thinking about you and this text, and I'm thinking about what? As you think about your life and the pressures you feel, the things you're under, the, the stuff that is going on in your life, what, what the burden of preaching is to make things relevant to people, right? So I know what's in your minds right now because I'm like you. I say, so what? I mean, what does this mean? What is this text about? And why does it relate to me, right? And it is right there that I believe God wants to meet us today. And that is right where we are living, right where we are believing what's pressing in upon us is the most important thing in our life. And it's right there that God wants to speak to us and say, slow down. And open, may he open our eyes to see what's really going on here. And there is a, a couple of things happening. It's an exciting passage. And to see how, how ultimately what's going on at Nineveh is what's happening in our hearts as well. So we are not unlike the Ninevites. There's a prophet who is rising. Jonah, good job, coming through. Prophet rising. There's a city receiving, and there is God, the judge, relenting. So the story picks back up. Jonah's the wayward prophet. We kind of know the story. If you're new with the Bible, he, he didn't want to be doing what he's doing now. In, in, uh, in, in Jonah 3, he wanted to go to a town called Tarshish. God uh, had other plans. And so 
Jonah now becomes the prophet he was called to be, and he goes through this massive city. The, the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, was uh, the Assyrians and the, and the capital. Everything about the Assyrians is big. And if you look back in this time period, the Assyrians owned the, the known world at the time, the big, big kingdom. Nineveh is the capital, archaeologists are estimating that the core of the city was about seven miles across, seven miles across the city, big, big city. And Jonah comes preaching, and he says, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's, the, that's sort of the condensed version. I'm sure he said more than that. But that's the condensed version. 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And we know that the number 40 in the Bible is the number for testing. Israel was tested 40 years in the desert as God was leading them to the land of promise. And we know that Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness parallel to to Israel in the Old Testament. So the number 40 comes up a number of times in the Bible. And the Assyrians are the enemy of of God's people or Israel. Um, And so Jonah does not want to have anything happen except judgment. And uh, this would be very similar to, I mean, these are hated people, hated people. This would be very, very similar to some, like a Jewish rabbi being told, go to Tehran and, and, and cry against it. See? And, and it, would be, it would be similar to, say, a, 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 a South Korean pastor told to go up to the capital of North Korea and, and, and wish it well and, 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 hope, and hope that God doesn't you know, bring his judgment upon them or something, right? It'd be, no, I don't want that. So Jonah has now had a, had a change of heart. God has helped him along. And so Nineveh is given some time. God doesn't always do this if God chooses to judge and he has his own timetable. Uh, Sodom, for instance, Sodom was given just a few hours. Uh, but Nineveh is given a lot more time. And it's interesting, it points to just the idea that when God raises up Jonah and gets him back on track, it points us to a larger picture in the Bible. God brings brings up, raises up a prophet time after time after time. Ever since the promise of Genesis 3.15, when God says there's going to be a conflict between Satan and, and his son, There's going to be a a promise of a redeemer, Genesis 3.15. The promise is unfolding, and God is patient, sending prophet after prophet after prophet. It's a picture of God raising up a prophet to deliver the message. And, of course, ultimately this is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the final prophet, anticipated in all the other prophets. God is faithful to bring his word to his troubled world, to, uh, to darkness. So it's a kind of a beautiful, beautiful picture there. Jonah is finally back on track. Now the people listen to him. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. That's a short statement of what was going on. They believed God, believed that judgment was rightly deserved by them. And uh, Jonah has been crying out, and he's kind of learned that in the fish, I think. Uh, he's been crying out, 
And now he's crying out as he walks through this massive city, and his preaching gets to the heart. His preaching gets to the heart. It's, Nineveh doesn't respond, okay, what are the three things we've got to do here to get God off our back? Not that way. It's deeply felt God is right, and they call a fast. And fasting is just simply a way, in, through, in, if fasting is connected to repentance, here's what's going on. Fasting means take away all taste from us except the taste of God's righteous judgment. Take away all delights, take away all the, the desserts or all the things that we're, we, we'd like to eat, and let us taste one thing, the righteous decree of God that he is right to judge us. We will stop all other tastes, and we want to taste that. It was raw, it was raw inside them. Desperate for God to intervene and hoping that God would relent. Now, I don't know when was the last time you really felt desperate for God. I don't know, when was that? I can tell you one church service where I felt the desperation of people, and I felt their upward dependence on God like no other service I've ever been part of. This room was packed with people standing in the back, and it was the Sunday after September 11, 2001. I was leading in worship barely, because I couldn't keep up with the crowd, they were pressing in on me. And they were, they were lifting up their voices in prayer, in song, in lament. And you could feel the common need of everyone in the room looking up to God. That's well, how else to describe it? But the senses, people's senses were sharpened. It was not a dull worship service. Sharp. It's a sharp service. They were coming to God. The Ninevites were coming to God as their only hope. Now that's what happened. That's what happened to me. At 19 years old, three-piece suit, strange guy, get through this, be polite, we're almost done, almost done, get back to my life. And by God's grace, I never recovered. What preaching does that is backed by God's presence that can't be avoided, his binding authority you never really recover, you see. And the king of Nineveh catches on to this. Something has happened that we can no longer avoid. And the king gets involved. And in verse 7, he orders, he is now the manager, the, the leader of the repentance. 
And he, he dresses up with sackcloth. Now, he's, he's a pace setter for the whole city. And he wants to make sure that the whole, since God has in, intends to judge the whole city, uh, including animals and every, every living thing, then every living thing stops eating. Okay, so then he decrees, let everyone turn, this is verse 7, turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger, just anger, just anger, just anger, so that we may not perish. The king gets the drama. We've got 40 days. Everybody, shape up. Let's get it together here. We've been given some time. Judgment hasn't fallen, and he is the manager of the repentance, making sure people are taking this seriously. It's interesting that the original audience, who probably read Jonah, I am guessing the original audience here was an audience likely in Judah, that small little nation after the kingdom was divided from Solomon, and I am I'm convinced There was a king who was ungodly, unrepentant, not listening to God, who is who who reads this story and hears of a pagan king repenting. And the message of Jonah comes through the centuries to him, inspired by God, to hold one of God's kings, as it were, accountable. Repentance is admitting that one is rightly condemned. Repentance is a change of heart about one's ways. And the whole city is now rising up out of the illusion that God is distant, God is remote, God tolerates evil. This illusion now is, is, is evaporating. Evil is seen for what it is by the people and the king. Evil was a way of living. Evil is desires. Evil does seek things like safety, peace, comfort, things. Evils can can do that kind of stuff. Evil has a theology. Evil lives based on a theology. It's a twisted theology. It isn't true, but it is a theology. It is a way of thinking about God. And repentance is a new mind toward God. The people of Nineveh and the king imagined a world where time would never be held against them. Ever been there? I'm 19 years old. I've got the world by the tail. I don't have any time issues. Why, I've got the few, my whole life ahead of me. Who's this three-piece suit guy? What does this have to do with reality? Boy, did I have an experience with reality that morning. Suddenly, time became very different in my mind. Suddenly, time felt like it was borrowed. Are you, are you catching this? This is the stuff 
that, that God brings by his grace and accompanies his word with real authority. You see, we thought we were protected. I thought I was protected. I didn't feel in danger. I, I didn't. That morning, I drove up to that church, sat there, sang some songs. My life is good. Uh, there's, no, there's no danger in my life. There's no, right, there's, it's just, it's not real. Now suddenly, time has a weightiness to it. And Jesus teaches various parables like this where the foolish heart thinks it has all kinds of time. The parable of the rich farmer who keeps building barns and barns. And it concludes with him dying and God saying, you fool, today... Your soul is required of you. So Jonah's preaching breaks through. And it breaks through their cultural moment that didn't grasp, grasp time correctly. Now for us, uh, we go on and on in our cultural moment concerning ourselves. We, we sort of, we've all been raised, the idea that we've all been raised with I guess I'm just full of good intentions, right? The well-meaning self within me. Uh, there is, by way of authority, we've been all raised to believe that there's no greater authority than my impulses, what I'm feeling at the moment. And the Ninevites have been using using their world for their own ends. I, I was raised as one who is a, a, a commodity seeker. I'm a baby boomer. What this means is that the whole world is some, it, it, it exists for me to consume. I'm a consumer of experiences. I'm a consumer of things. I'm a consumer of people. Uh, get, me, uh, get me a religion that I can consume. This means that everything is treated as a commodity. I was raised this way. The king is saying, stop treating this place, people, things, this world, as if it's yours. It is not. It is God's. That's one of the great in-breakings that could ever happen in anyone. And so repentance goes very, very deep. They're not just trying to placate God, get him off their backs, and get back to what they really want. So there is a weightiness about God's presence, a weightiness to it. We think of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, say it with me, and fall short of the... They fall short of the glory of God. Interesting phrase, isn't it? What does, that, what does that mean? You fall short of the glory of God. This means that you were meant for the, the weightiness of God's presence. And you fall short of his glory. The Hebrew word glory really is associated with the word weightiness or weight. To fall short of God's glory is to enter into a world of weightlessness. There's nothing that tethers you to, what, to reality. 
And so when, you, when God comes with his presence, it always has a feel of weightiness to it. And that is good for you. That's what you've been made for. And you and I fall short of that glory. And by God's good grace, we are bound to experience his glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ. So the weight of God's glory, his holiness, his his majesty, his justice, the weight of his glory falls upon Nineveh. And it's inescapable. Interesting, God had sent prophet after prophet to his people, Israel and Judah. And very rarely did the weight of glory fall upon them. Of course, God sends the weight of glory ultimately through Jesus Christ. And it is dismissed As a kid growing up, my first discipleship, what I was first trained in, was celebrity culture. When my mom would pick me up from kindergarten, we would go home. And around 3.30 in the afternoon, uh, she would be ironing or doing something, and I would be there in her room, and the TV would be on. And there would be uh, celebrity talk shows going. And so from my earliest days, um, I would listen to people like Phyllis Diller, the comedian from years ago. Um, From my earliest days, I would watch celebrities. And I would listen to them. And I'd try to make sense of the world from them. (laughs) and uh, if I didn't understand something, it was always tomorrow. And as I got older, and of course now I'm reflecting back on this, I can only say that it was weightless. It appears to be important. It's a funny story. But as I've as, I, as I've grown and changed, and now can, I can actually kind of see it more clearly, there's a weightlessness to it. Again, it feels urgent because it's coming in the moment, and they have a kind of glow about them. They are the authorities in our culture. They play a significant role of defining for us what is the good life, what we should pursue, what we should listen to. And the one thing I learned, even though they were aging, the one thing I learned was that we all have plenty of time. And time is for wasting. Time is is for being filled with just trivial little anecdotal goofy stories about what happened at at the film set when they were making the movie. Cute little insights into... and. And it has a feel of there is nothing worth uh, pursuing that is of significance. It's just a momentary laugh. It's a commercial break. We'll be right back. I couldn't figure out if 
that that was important, or is it the new and improved tide? I didn't know. In other words, everything becomes flattened, flattened out in television land. It all becomes this crazy little place, this place of just, what does it mean? What's extraordinary about the repentance of Nineveh is, of course, this is what God had planned all along. And we now have God responding to their repentance. And we have God relenting. In the simple way of putting this, this may trouble some of us, didn't God say judgment was going to fall? God said judgment was going to fall, but he put a condition on it. We want to watch that very carefully when the prophets speak. Sometimes the prophets say there are no conditions. It's coming. And other times they put a condition on it. And here's Jonah. Jonah in his preaching, there was a condition, 40 days. What God now has done is he's relenting, and verse 10 happens here. When God saw what they, had, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Someone related to me years ago wondered, they had heard that I was now a, a, a minister and a preacher, and they wanted to know what kind of preacher I was. And they prefaced their question with, now you're not one of these hell, fire, and brimstone preachers, are you? You know, sort of this. And I said, well, I want you to know that uh, that's not the only message of the Bible. I said, the Bible is a message of God's justice. But it's also a message that God is willing to withhold the day of judgment. And I said, that's what today is. Today's the day when he's, not hold, he, he's withholding the day of judgment. So we live in this time when God is willing to withhold judgment. And he's willing to call out the rebels in the hills and say, come out, throw down your arms, and there can be Amnesty. Uh, the 40 days of the world has now extended out, and we don't know how long it will last. But Jonah tells us that he did not do it, and Nineveh did not experience the judgment of God. But I want you to know something, that God never does overlook sin. Um, a lot of Christians think this. They think that God forgives sin. God forgives sins because that's just what he does. And God just forgives. And the answer is no, he doesn't. And while judgment didn't fall on Nineveh, judgment did fall on his son. So sin is always going to be a paid for. Judgment did fall. God has to be just, and he has to be holy. And Exodus 34 tells us that he will by no means clear the guilty. It was extremely important for me that day when I first heard that preacher. 
to hear of God's standard of righteousness and holiness. And all of us gather Sunday after Sunday, and we hear over and over that I couldn't clear my name of my own doing, and I have to own what I own, but God sent his son for my judgment. Edmund Clowney, influential in Presbyterian and Reformed circles, he says, Jesus came not to wield the axe of judgment, but to bear the stroke of death. Everything that the Ninevites had stressed over, every plan that they had put into place, everything that they had ever hoped for, everything they had tried to establish, everything they intended to stay put, to to be of lasting value, everything they had as a civilization was under threat. And Jesus says the same thing as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. He who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them may be compared to a man who built his house upon the sand. And the winds came, and the rain came, and great was the fall of that house. Jesus also said, he who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And here's the gist or the point of that is that Jesus Christ comes to us and he, he wants us to come to a conclusion about him. That day when that preacher was preaching, I had to come to a conclusion about Jesus, and this was it. His authority is binding on me. I have to listen. I have no other place to go to escape God's right judgment. Nineveh could have said, Huh? Who? That little guy? What? Do you know how big our walls are? Do you know how many people we stomp on? How many nations we destroy? Name me one nation that has stood up against us. And you say, what, little prophet? They could have dismissed his words. They could have said his message is a foolish message. And here is the grace of God that you and I have experienced. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says this, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And here is one angle on that perceived foolishness. It sounds irrelevant to my pressing needs. That was my attitude that morning when I first heard the gospel. This whole church thing is completely irrelevant to real life. You see, when the gospel is preached, sadly, it sounds like foolishness. Why? Because I've got other pressing needs in my life. 
And someone from 2,000 years ago dying on a cross and all that, it just feels irrelevant. You know what it really is? It's just mere words. And the Ninevites could have responded that way, but they didn't. They sensed the weight and the authority of it. So, rejoice, people of God. God has brought the weight of the Son's authority to you. You've responded to it. If you're not a believer here today, may you sense the authority of the words. Me, you can dismiss me. But the, the, the other authority that's in the room, the other voice that's far more important, infinitely more important than my voice, the other voice in the room is the voice who is telling you, time is not your own. Spurgeon uh, is a famous preacher from years ago. He said this, and then I'm done. He said, true preaching and the obedient hearing of revealed truth, listen to that, and the obedient hearing of revealed truth are an acceptable form of worship to the Most High and perhaps one of the most spiritual in which the human mind can be engaged. This means that Nineveh began to rightly worship the true God. They were on the track to recovering and to seeing God for who he is. And that central to that is his glorious presence among us that is valued. We hear him, we respond to him, and ultimately we thank him for judgment falling upon his son whereby we can say, yes, it's true, we fall short of the glory of God. But through Jesus Christ, we will be experiencing the glory forever and ever. If you do not believe these things, respond to the, that tremor that's in you of saying, I think it's, I, I, I'm on to it. I'm getting a sense that this is very, very real. Don't turn away from this moment. We're here to help you. We're here to answer questions. And, uh, and to love you well. Let's pray. Lord, what are the pressing matters of our day? What are the things that really grab us and hold us? I pray you'd help us. Help us to see through all the fog of our moment and to grasp the weightiness of your message and the delight that you have in your son, that you willingly gave your son And that your view of us now is not that we're groveling and trying to please you, but you are so completely satisfied in Jesus Christ that you claim us as your own and you have separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for your great compassion on us. Help us to redeem the time that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.